Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. So Scott Pappas, Principal Consultant and Head of Alternatives and Derivatives at Frontier, welcome. Thanks for having me, Alex. So let's kick off uh, with your background and what got you interested in finance and particularly what got you interested in doing a PhD in finance? Sure. Well, it stretches back a few years now. Um, I used to be working in engineering and I used to be a draftsman and I worked with these amazingly passionate engineers who were creative, loved their work would take it home on the weekends. And I just didn't have that passion for engineering that they did. So I started looking around, casting the net, see what was out there. And I came across this biography about this guy named Warren Buffett. That really got me interested in investing. And the next book I picked up was called something along the lines of a billion dollars a day, referring to the turnover in currency markets at the time, back in the late 1990s. And these things really got me interested about investing. And I just wanted to learn more about it. It was something I found a real passion for and something I wanted to pursue more and more. So eventually I got to the point where I said, let's cut off the engineering career and get into finance. So I started an undergraduate and was lucky enough to um, get into the market um, a few years back now and started working as a derivatives portfolio manager. Saw that as a really cool way to learn about investing, being at the coalface and essentially doing an apprenticeship in in managing portfolios. But the thing I found was that that portfolio management was really enjoyable and really valuable, but you're very focused on the day-to-day goings-on of what was in the market. And I really had this desire to learn more about markets and learn more about long-term investing and So I um, eventually got to the point where I wanted to increase my research skills and that led me to doing a PhD. And the objective wasn't to become an academic and talk about theories. It was to learn how to build better portfolios. So I was lucky enough to work under a couple of academics who were very practical and had experience at hedge funds and with asset owners, Professor Michael Drew and Professor Rob Bianchi. They were fantastic supervisors for me to learn about the theory of investing, but more importantly, about the empirics of investing. So it was all about coming up with insights that would help me build better portfolios down the track. And that's, uh, you know, that was uh, a really important part of my career, taking that break, getting into the academic side of things, and then uh, starting again um, in investment strategy and portfolio management. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you move from engineering to financial markets and um, there is a bit of a crossover there, which is the whole financial engineering that we've seen. So, a lot of exciting things have come out of financial engineering. I'm curious to get a bit of a background in terms of what did you learn in terms of the empirical research that you did as you thought about markets? Because I think there's a lot that you can learn from the feel of markets, which is the portfolio trading piece you did understanding how markets work and how they operate versus then the empirical understanding that you learn from an academic context? Yeah, definitely. I I found that really valuable because I think as an academic, you can get really tied up in the elegant solutions to problems and not really think so much about the practical implementations. Whereas with being a trader, it's all about the practicalities of what you're trying to do. And 
finding the balance between those two perspectives was, I think, one of the really valuable things that came out of me doing the PhD. It was not, let's come up with some wonderful, complicated model that uh, tells us what future volatility would be. It would be, okay, well, how can we build better portfolios? What decisions can we make that will achieve, to help us achieve our investment objectives? And it's really about, for me, it was about finding that balance between what works in theory and what's actually going to work in practice. I find that part fascinating because really it's an understanding of risk and, and how to understand risk from an academic point of view versus a tangible point of view and an actual dollar point of view. I think there's, there's some real distinctions between running models and model portfolios versus actually seeing money uh, coming in and out of the portfolio and potential drawdowns. Oh, 100%. And that um, you used the term financial engineering. Um, coming from an engineering background, I'm a bit sceptical of the use of it in finance. Um, I think it's good to a degree. Engineering better, if it means building better solutions for clients, I think that's a great way to think about it. But if it's thinking about the world through a very through the perspective that things are well-defined and problems can have defined answers, then that can be problematic because, as we know, investing is all about probabilities and distributions and you don't know what the future looks like and there's this um, feedback effect where people are the ones making the decisions. It's not kind of these engineering constants like gravity impacting on markets. It's people making decisions and there's behavioural biases at work. There's feedback mechanisms. There's things like liquidity that change over time, volatility changes over time. So while the idea of building and engineering portfolios is a good idea, we have to be careful about you know how far we take it because you can sometimes the easiest, the best solution is the easiest one, not necessarily the one that's been over-engineered. It's fascinating you say that because I think if you look back to the days of Warren Buffett, which is your initial entry into finance, it was very much a bottom-up fundamental analysis approach and and really qualitative uh, analysis. And the markets today have become very quantitative in the way that we look at data, utilize data for every single thing, and we we try to backtest things to to oblivion ultimately – and are we losing almost touch with the reality of, of what finance is, is about and what portfolio management is about? In some ways we are. And I think it's great to have a broad perspective on these things. And it's great to take econometric and quantitative models and apply them to finance. But we have to take a step back sometimes and go, right, what are we trying to achieve here? Is this actually something we want to buy and hold for a long period of time? How much should how much consideration should we give to things like volatility? skewness, convexity. These are important concepts, but you have to frame them in the context of what you're trying to achieve from the portfolio. And I was having a discussion with um, one of my colleagues earlier today about volatility. It's something we talk about all the time in investment management, but volatility is something that you can't actually measure. It's not like your height where you can take a ruler out and measure it with with a high degree of accuracy. Volatility is unobservable. You're estimating it whenever you um, try and put a number on it. And what's more, it's actually not a true measure of risk. It's one perspective at looking at risk. So you've got something you can't actually measure and it's not actually the thing that you're trying to measure anyway. So it's, you can get a bit convoluted and it can become 
you know, this pursuit of accuracy and this pursuit of quantitative models can kind of lead you up the garden path sometimes. So it's important to have that perspective, but you have to be, I think, a bit sceptical of where it's taking you sometimes. It's an interesting question you raised there, which is what is a true measure of risk in in the world today? And, and volatility is a statistical tool that we can use to identify uh, its value change versus its initial value. But ultimately, as an investor, you're really more worried about drawdowns um, than and perceived drawdowns or long-term drawdowns that you end up end up with a loss of wealth. Are investors really, I think, well well versed to understand that difference? No, and it's I mean even experienced investors with decades of experience, I think, find that it's challenging to think about these concepts because they're hard to actually define ex ante. And even when you're experiencing these things, you may have this great plan set out for your to achieve your investment objectives. But when you're suffering through COVID last year or the GFC or something along those lines, it really throws that thinking out the window. And one of the things I've learned over time is having that objective is one part of it, but having the wherewithal and ability to stick to that investment objective and the plan that you have set for achieving it is you know, just as important. The other angle that I think is also very challenging for people is a psychological aspect of markets and pricing and, mm. and volatility and, and staying in the course in some cases or you know, changing course. And, mm. and, and how do we train people as investors, as asset owners, as consultants to actually deal with the psychological change that comes alongside volatility and drawdowns? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. And I think- putting my alternatives management hat on, it's one of the things that we've ch- we've been challenged with in the sector because I think there's a degree of scepticism around alternatives, particularly when you compare them to what equity markets have done over the last few years. And you know, equity markets have gone gangbusters. So most investments in comparison kind of look relatively poor. And the problem with that approach is that you're looking at the last 10 years of performance and extrapolating that into the future. So the key thing here is to not look at, to to have an eye on short-term and medium-term performance, but keep the investment objectives firmly in mind and think about why you've gone down a particular path and how you're going to get to those investment objectives. And what we know through investing and through life in general, it's it's about ups and downs and it, it's about sticking to the plan. So I think some of the tools we use is making sure that investors are clear on what their objectives are, having metrics and frameworks for evaluating progress towards those objectives, making sure that investors begin with conviction in their investments. And these are things that you can do and tools that you can use to help get through some of those uh, tough cyclical times. It's interesting you talk about conviction and I think many people do have conviction around particular outcomes until they see their friend or their other partner uh, that's got much better returns than they do and they now say, well, hold on, what did we do wrong? Um, And so, again, we live in this world where we're highly competitive uh, and it's a very um, competitive market for returns. And so how do you keep people on course when they may have conviction that this is a great idea but can be easily swayed? Yeah, it's um, and this is not just a problem for your Uber driver that, you, that you're taking home from a restaurant at night. It's it's something that institutional investors, experienced investors, um, deal with because you do look at what's going on in other markets. You do look at what your peers are doing. 
you do look at what other asset classes are doing. And it's really tough to kind of keep that perspective of, okay, well, I've bought this investment. It's underperforming against some of my other investments. And it's important to kind of keep in mind that, okay, this is just the point in a cycle where it is going to underperform. And the rationale for holding this asset is for it, what it's going to provide over 20 or 30 years, not what it's going to do over the, you know, what it's done over the previous three months. That's the theory. In practice, it's incredibly hard. So like I say, we try and work with clients, have that conviction, develop that conviction, and have ways for making sure that the focus is on the long-term objectives. And, you know, sometimes you have to say, look, we, we didn't get it right, so it's time to change. And But you don't want to do that based on, you know, poor performance. You want to have um, material, you want to have that decision made based on something that's changed material in either the investor's objectives or the investment itself. It's interesting when you talk about sort of people's willingness to lose money for for three months. It, it's not a very long time, but un- unfortunately in this world, people are so paranoid. They're looking day to day how their, their fund's going. And one of the challenges around diversification is to have assets and, and securities that move differently. Now, unfortunately, people I don't think have a lot of tolerance for that. And so to that end, that's not di- that's not diversification at the end of the day. Um, so how do you then try to convince people that this is a true portfolio that can work through different economic cycles? Yeah, it's a tough one. You're absolutely right. I mean, we love the concept of diversification, but by definition, what that means is you're going to have some losers in your portfolio and that hurts. And when you're kind of opening up the paper and reading about peer performance and you're under pressure from regulation or from members to perform consistently, it makes that investment decision-making complicated. So, you know, it's. I think we're getting better at it over time. I think we're doing a better job as an industry in communicating and educating about the benefits and necessity of focusing on the long term. But I still think there's a long way to go. And you know, it's. I guess it it plays to one of the things we're trying to do as as advisors in the alts and derivative space is there are short-term concerns that matter and there are medium-term concerns that matter and this is where things like defensive allocations can come into play and that comes down to again being specific about the risk so it's okay to be focused on peers and take that into consideration but it's probably best to call it out and say look here's a genuine risk to the portfolio whether it's member behavior whether it's performance against peers call it out and then build the portfolio to suit that uh, intent. It's interesting as well. If you if you look at the corollary to people's lives day to day, they have insurance on all sorts of things, whether it's their car insurance, their house insurance, life insurance, many different insurance options. But really what you're talking about is really in types of insurance that should sit in the portfolio for institutional investors. And it feels that there's a real apprehension to taking on some of these types of strategies. Um, I think so, but I think investors over time are becoming more comfortable with that idea of, okay, we're going to buy insurance. Let's call that out and work out how much we want to spend on insurance. And so what we're doing is, uh, this is this is a topic we're doing a lot of work on at the moment, and com- it's based on conversations we've been having with clients. And with insurance, what you do is you work out what risks you're trying to protect against and you buy an insurance policy to protect against that risk. Uh, it's similar with investment markets. Um, the first point is actually, you know, working out what a bad scenario is and 
you know, thinking about client conversations from five years ago on the, on the on, when I was on the client side, it was all about protecting against equity market risk. Now it's much broader than that. It's about climate risk. It's about inflation risk and other things. So defining what you're actually trying to protect against is the first step. Then you've got to work out what your insurance policy actually looks like and how you want that to behave. So with equity market risk, is your insurance policy going to protect you against a 5% pullback in equity markets? Or are you worried about something that's more drawn out and longer term, say a decline of 15% over two or three years? So defining what the risk is you're trying to insure against is, is really important. And the more detail you can get into that decision, the better. And then it's about working out, okay, so how does your insurance policy behave in that situation? Do you want it to be up 10 times its initial premium that you spend or 15 times? Or are you looking for something that's a bit more modest uh, in terms of how it reacts in that bad environment that you've defined? So that's that's something that we're putting, trying to build a framework around to help clients make those decisions about, okay, we have a risk that we want to insure. We've defined that. We now know what we want to do to ensure that. And you know, I think these are the really important decisions that investors are increasingly focusing on and getting more sophisticated in how they use and getting more comfort around actually paying for insurance. I'm curious around the terminology of alternatives. You know, if I think about the word, it's changed a lot over the last 30, 40 years. It was historically just anything that wasn't equities or bonds. Now it can represent so many different things. And I'm curious, you know, you've, you've transitioned from an asset owner to a consultant. How has the word alternatives changed throughout your time in the market and also moving from an asset owner to, to a consultant? This is, this is a bit of a frustration for me working in the industry for um, a while now, has been the jargon and words we use to describe alternative investments in general and derivatives. And it's historically, it's almost like we've made, tried to make it as complicated as possible. I think we're doing a better job now of actually getting to the crux of what we're talking about and describing things in more simpler terms. And the way we think about alternatives is that it is actually a kind of a, a bit of a leftover bucket. It's it's comprised of things that don't fit neatly into your traditional asset classes. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's challenging when you're trying to talk about alternatives because there's it covers just so many different things. But that's the beauty of alternatives in that you can actually achieve a range of different investment outcomes using alternatives. It's not just like bonds where you get a fixed nominal cash flow or equities where you get that exposure to growth. With alternatives, you get a range of different things you can do, but that creates complexity around how you talk to clients about them and how you get them into the portfolio. So one way we think about alternatives is that we kind of come back to the investment objectives you're trying to achieve. And there's there's a few of them. And, you know, two of the main ones are really diversification and downside protection. And when you think about that, that's kind of, try, it's, it's aimed at simplifying the problem, but not oversimplifying it. So even when you think about diversification, we talked about this a little bit before, but it's, when you talk mean diversification, do you mean something that diversifies over a one-month period or over a five-year period? And getting definition around that is really powerful and really helpful for investors and helping them understand the role in the portfolio and how they should treat it on an um, ongoing basis. Because building a portfolio that diversifies over five years using alternatives is quite different to one that diversifies over a shorter time frame. So trying to simplify and get to the crux of what you're 
aiming to achieve with the investment, I think is really helpful in determining what sort of alternatives you should be putting into your portfolio. I'm curious also around how the the industry's changed around alternatives. Like I think historically there was a, a feeling that alternatives really represented hedge funds. Traditional hedge funds have now changed in terms of their strategies as well because of the market regime. Maybe if you could give some context around how do you see the market regime changing and, and what types of alternative style strategies can work in this new environment? Yeah, it's an interesting interesting topic. I think the the hedge fund world has definitely evolved over time for the better, I think. Again, it comes down to this, it's, there's a lot of choice in the alternative space. So again, it comes back to working out what you're trying to achieve from your investment in alternatives. One way that we've been thinking about it is, uh, I mean, all, all investors are in the same environment at the moment. They're thinking about ways to deal with lower yields. They're thinking about ways to deal with uncertainty around the inflationary outlook. So what we're doing is thinking about specific alternatives that can help out in this situation. So one thing you might be worried about is is the duration of your assets. As long-term investors, we typically target long duration assets because that's what we should be doing is if you're investing for 40 years and you should be targeting a duration around that mark. Um, that's hard to do and we can't do that perfectly. But the downside of that approach is that you're exposed to changes in interest rates. Um, so you can be sensitive to moves upward in interest rates. And that's something that I think investors are thinking about at the moment. So with alternatives, one way to balance that risk is to start thinking about shorter duration cash flows that you can extract from alternatives. So there's things like thinking about alternative risk premia. You have things like carry that you can get from commodity markets or from volatility markets or things like merger arbitrage. The cash flow duration of those assets is much shorter than what you'd get from an infrastructure or equity investment. So I think while we should be focused on long-term investments for most funds, it's important to have a bit of a balance of investments to make sure that your portfolio has the acceptable exposure to interest rate risk and you're not overly sensitive to moves in the discount rate going forward. So that's that's one way we're thinking about the um, forward-looking environment. We're starting to think more about what the risks are in the in an investor's portfolio and how we can better diversify those. It's fascinating because we are now obviously coming off the back end of a 40-year decrease in interest rates and the danger of an increase in, in rates is is very real for many funds that are extremely long duration. And to that end, your conversation really just then about trying to find some more shorter duration sort of cash flows is an interesting one of trying to reduce the risk of being such long duration, uh, particularly at a time where there is concern that, that rates start to rise. Now, one of the questions that sort of comes to me is then, how do you then think about managing these these different types of strategies on the short on the short side, right? You you mentioned CTAs as one example, um, carry is another example. For many of the the large institutional funds, I'm not sure if they're equipped to be able to deal with managing these types of strategies together. You know, can they can they time them, or should they really be ultimately investing in some sort of a multi-strat style solution that allows them to move them to move as opposed to the actual fund moving? I'm curious to get your thoughts around whether funds have the right governance structure to do those types of investments internally. Um, I think it, it it differs across the clients that we talk to. So, and this is as the Australian markets evolved over the last few years, we've seen 
funds, a handful of funds, say, get larger and larger and increase their internal investment capabilities. Um, one thing that I've found really interesting and as a positive outcome is that funds haven't just looked at internalization as we need to start trading foreign currency in-house or we need to start trading equities in-house. They've taken a broader perspective and they've looked at what they can internalize and they have been basically picky about what they choose to internalize. So maybe it is that they want to bring dealing in-house, but maybe they want to bring the research process in-house, or maybe it's just getting a better, a deeper level of engagement with an investment manager. So I think the question of whether or not they can do it internally varies across funds. Um, what we try and do is work with manage, with funds to find the best solution for them. So if they have the internal capabilities to manage things internally, then we'll work with them to get the best solution, whether that's um, helping them out with process development or whether that's helping them out, have, helping them have a deeper engagement with a manager, we'll do that. But it could be that the best solution is to simply outsource that to a manager, have the manager make all the decisions and the client monitors them on an ongoing basis and we help that process along. So it really comes down to the internal capabilities of a fund and we see a massive dispersion in the amount of internal capabilities funds have, but it also comes down to that um, investment objective as well. And you know, at the end of the day, we keep coming back to what's the long-term objectives and what's the best journey, what's the best path to get us there. I'm, I'm curious also in terms of, you know, as you think about types of strategies, like it's not just putting one alternative as a diversifier. It's a, it's a multiple of, of diversifiers. What does that look like for, for a fund? You know, is there any sort of traditional way that you think about what makes up a group of diversifiers, for example? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And kind of, you know, one thing that we hear a lot about is what's a good bond replacement? Well, the answer to that is there's no good bond replacements except for bonds. But then if you take a step back, you can say, okay, well, what do you get from bonds? Let's look to replicate that, not using a simple, single, magical asset class, but finding a few asset classes that we can combine together to give us similar characteristics. And so that's kind of the approach that we'd use with a client. What's the overall objective we're aiming for from this sector? And we have a range of clients and the sectors are probably as diverse as you can imagine. No real sector configuration looks the same across clients because some clients just want a simple single manager in their sector. Others want more control over it. So they might have uh, a few managers. Others might actually get into the weeds a bit more and determine what strategies their manager is actually applying for them. So what we try and do is work out, again, it comes back to the capabilities. We'll work with a client, work out what their capabilities are and work out what the best solution is for them. And that could be anything from simple manager selection all the way down to reviewing the process they have for uh, an internal investment process. I'm curious also, you know, your title includes derivatives as well. Um, what does that look like? It's interesting because most of the funds historically didn't do much there. It was sort of outsourced. You know, are you, are you seeing that come in-house and, and how, a comp uh, how are the, the funds using derivatives for hedging? Is it for you know, hedging FX? Is it hedging equity risk? How are they using alternative uh, derivatives? Sorry, specifically there. This is this is an area that's really grown for us in the last few years. When I was a client and talking to Frontier four or five years ago, I didn't know a whole lot about their derivatives capability, and it's grown out a lot in the last few years. 
uh, clients. And part of that is due to capabilities we've brought in-house and the talent that we've hired. And part of that is driven by clients who want to get a better understanding of uh, how they can use derivatives, monitoring the derivatives they have in the existing portfolio and looking for new ways to apply derivatives. We're seeing derivatives used in a number of ways. We're working with clients in different ways to use derivatives. So it could be that we work with a client to create a tail risk hedging program. So we work with the manager, we work with the client to to set that up. It could be that we're reviewing a process where a, a client is actually using derivatives themselves internally and they want a second look at how they use them. And we'll look into the governance and we'll look into the um, risk management processes around how they use derivatives. But this is an area I think is, and this is one of the attractions personally for me coming to Frontier is I think we can better exploit our use of derivatives to achieve investment outcomes because in this low yield environment, I think saving 10, 20, 30 basis points by using really efficient implementation has a much greater impact on portfolio outcomes now with low yields than it did say 10 years ago. So for me, it's about working out better ways to implement beta or to achieve downside protection or to diversify the portfolio. So efficient implementation is something that we're focusing a lot on because we think it's going to make a difference for investors going forward. It's interesting you talk about the efficiency there. Does that mean that derivatives could be used as a de facto equity exposure, for example, rather than holding underlying going through futures to to get that exposure? Oh, definitely. And this is, this is something we're talking about to our clients uh, much more about. And we're lucky because we have people from investment management backgrounds and investment banking backgrounds. And I come from a derivatives trading background where we've actually used these products. We've seen them risk managed at a manager or at a bank. And we have a range of different perspectives on how derivatives can be used. And we don't have a particular bias towards any single implementation. What we look at is doing is We'll look at the scenario, we'll look at the client, and we'll look at the range of implementations that we know, and we'll make a decision on what suits, what is best suited that, to that particular application. So it might be that you want to use futures for your DAA process because you're trading in and out of the market pretty regularly, but contrast that with a buy and hold position that you might have for five or 10 years. Well, that's probably better suited to finding a manager, whether it's a uh, passive or an active manager. Or it could be that you're looking for something in between, and that's where a total return swap might um, be more appropriate. So we don't have a particular bias to any sort of implementation, but what we can do is have a look at them objectively and determine the best fit for a particular application. And that's definitely something we're talking to clients much more about and something we're focusing a lot more on at, at Frontier. It's fascinating because it's also a challenge for some of the larger funds in getting the exposure that they that they need. They've got a lot of cash coming in and they've got to maintain a specific exposure to hit their SAA. And so derivatives offer that other opportunity for them too. Exactly. And when you start digging into that stuff, it, it can become pretty complex pretty quickly. You know, if you've got a uh, if you're holding a long position of futures because you've got all these cash flows coming in that you need to equitize, you have to take into consideration market impact costs, how much it's going to cost you in the role. And so that's where having analysis and the research to go, okay, well, I think it's time to roll this into a total return swap or time to invest physically, uh, uh, getting more detail and, and helping clients make those decisions is, I think, uh, a real potential value add for us as advisors. 
All right. I think that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Scott. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.